I'm Chuck Bentley, CEO of Crown Financial Ministries and founder of the Christian Economic Forum. In this episode, I interview professional economist Jerry Boyer. We talk about a far range of topics, including his global economic outlook, conspiracy theories, and the end times. Jerry's compiled an impressive record as a leading thinker in finance and economics. He's the founder of the influential economic think tank, the Allegheny Institute, and he's been a frequent commentator on Fox News, Fox Business News, and CNBC. He's a Forbes contributor, contributing editor of AffluentInvestor.com, and senior fellow in business economics at the Center for Cultural Leadership. I hope you enjoy this interview with our special guest, Jerry Boyer. Well, Jerry, I have to tell you, this is such a joy for me. Uh, you know, I have two goals for this podcast. <laughs> Number one is I keep up with you. <laughs> no, no problem there. I may have to use a hand signal to say, okay, Jerry, I, I need to ask a question for clarity. Uh, secondly, I do pray that what we talk about will bring peace. There's just a lot of uh, turmoil around these issues uh, and what's going on in the world. And, and I thank you for taking your time. I know you're in the media spotlight often, and uh, you've agreed to take the time to speak with me today. So thank you very much. It's my pleasure and my honor, and there's no place else I'd rather be than right here talking to you right now. I want to remind people that we became friends when uh, I got invited to participate on a investment panel that you were the head of. And by the way, you're the first professional economist that I've interviewed uh, in this whole podcast series. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and I'll, I'll take the role of the layman that tries to translate if you use terms that I can't understand. But you and I met during the first crisis, uh, the, 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 the 08, 09, and I remember thinking, wow, these, these, this group, you were on the, you were heading the Ron Blue Trust Investment Committee. You were so well-informed and, and steady, and so many of the things that you thought about and reasoned with at that time were correct. So it's just a pleasure to get back together with you during the next crisis. It is. And um, with the previous crisis under our belt um, and the benefit of being able to look back and to have learned from it, you know, uh, James says that um, count, it all, count it joy when you fall into diverse temptations, right? Because the trying of our faith produces patience and it produces wisdom. So now it doesn't have to. We can go through bad things and get less, less wise. Um, but if we go through bad things and we ask God for wisdom, then those tough times give us wisdom. And 2008 and 2009 was a wonderful wisdom experience for those who asked God. And it was, in some ways, an unlearning experience for those who didn't turn to God for wisdom. Um, and so they're going to react the same way now as they reacted then, because they haven't learned the lessons of it. And it's our job to be as steady as we can and take a wisdom approach rather than to lose our heads. You know, Jerry, because we're in a, and I totally agree with you, and I, I feel the same way. I grew in wisdom through that past crisis and feel much more prepared for today. But because we're talking primarily to a community of friends, I just want to start out with the personal questions. How are you and Susan doing? How's the family? Are you safe? Uh, are, are you protecting your health? Yes, um, Susan and I are doing quite well. The family's doing quite well. Um, we, uh, first of all, we tend to live this way anyway. And in other words, we're a small family business. Um, we're not at headquarters, say, of the companies that, that we deal with. Um, so 
you know, kind of isolated to begin with. Uh, in addition, we went into social distancing very early in the process. In other words, way before um, the federal agencies were suggesting it and long before the governor of Pennsylvania ordered it. Um, I mean, we're going back three plus weeks where we basically told our staff to scatter to homes, work from home, let's get better at digital. Now we'd already done that. We do a lot with Slack, we did, we've done a lot with Zoom and Skype. So we already were pretty distributed in our processing. So we got up to speed without really missing a beat and they've all been isolated from a very early time. So I, I feel pretty confident about, about where we are. We stocked up, but not hoarded. We didn't buy all the toilet paper that we could find. Um, but we already had a pretty good stock from before. We already had stocked up over the years um, with just emergency stuff, water, canned goods, et cetera, so we didn't have to go out and hoard. And uh, we're really grateful to God. It, it kind of doesn't even seem fair. I know a lot of people are suffering, but our lifestyle really hasn't changed that much. So um, we're grateful to God that, um, that what, what, however, in his providence, that we were kind of prepared for something like this beforehand. Yeah, I totally agree, Jerry. We were as well. I, I want to talk to you about some things that I didn't send you in advance uh, because I know you'll be uh, ready for it regardless of what I ask. We're later in the stage now of this crisis than when it began to unfold. And there's this ever-growing tension between the attempt to flatten the curve, the attempt to stop the spread of the virus, and the economic damage that many feel are, 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 is being done. You know, I've been comparing it to brain surgery. You've got to deal with the problem in the brain, but also try not to kill the patient at the same time. And it's a delicate balance, and some are, they're, they're vacillating from one side to the other, stricter controls versus looser controls. Where do you fall on that question, and when do you see this thing letting up when you think we may begin to normalize a little bit? I fall on that question in the in the realm of, um, trying to get us past that scarcity trade-off mentality of are we going to, you know, what's more important? Um, are we, we're going to kill the economy, but we'll save lives, or are we going to save lives, but kill the economy? And I try to approach this to, to the, the ability that I'm able uh, through a biblical lens. And you had mentioned before this interview that there's this idea, and there's this Hebrew word shalom, which we say means peace, but it's more than peace. It's peace prosperity, things being as they ought to be. And in God's kingdom of shalom, we never find God saying, I want you to choose to save lives, but not choose to be productive and prosperous. I never hear him say, I want you to choose to be, you know, prosperous, even though some people are going to die. That to me, that kind of thinking is already halfway to the devil's thought process which is to take goods and make goods enemies of each other and to trade things off against one another, to get the sense that in God's economy, there's a great deal of scarcity and we're all on the lifeboat and who gets thrown off the lifeboat? You know, who do we, you know, you know, well, grandma, she's 85 and she has diabetes. She's probably not going to make it anyway. Right. So we're not going to shut down the economy to save her. are we? And, and I'm hearing, I was hearing that kind of rhetoric, not grandma, but pretty close to that rhetoric from a lot of, Christians, a lot of evangelical Christians who decried the threat of death panels under Obamacare and were right to, because when you have centralized control of healthcare, you do tend to get something like death panels. 
And we were Zoom right there with death panels. Hey, we can't commit economic suicide to protect people. And I just think that's the wrong way to think about it entirely. We can have both. That doesn't mean there aren't some short-term trade-offs. In the Bible, you have quarantine laws. You have rules about quarantine in the Bible. Leprosy, dead bodies, people who touch lepers or dead bodies. Um, and it would probably seem bad for a, the ancient Israelite GDP to tear down the house of a leper. But it's not. It's conducive of overall shalom. Now, you probably wouldn't shut down all of Israel because you find a leper. Right. That that doesn't make sense. You wouldn't do a permanent shutdown of the nation. So in God's economy, we were trading upwards rather than trading downwards, rather than, well, when things get really tough, what do we have to do? Things aren't there. Things are not remotely there. We are the richest economy in the history of the world, and we can easily go a month, a month and a half, two months at a shutdown level and not permanently damage our economy. We can easily afford to protect sick and elderly people. Um, but Let's get past the trade-off. If, if, if it comes down to that, you choose life. But it doesn't come down to that false choice. So focusing on high-risk areas as opposed to low-risk areas, focusing on high-risk people as opposed to low-risk people, focusing on which parts of the economy, as we come out of this probably you know, around the end of April, is it then we're all on again, like go? Well, no, maybe it's go on road and bridge construction, big growth big GDP, big ticket items, but it's not, but maybe we don't have um, rock concerts in nightclubs with a mosh pit for the rest of the year, right? Because, and you know what? We don't miss, that's, those are not high productivity activities. A lot of the stuff we do when we gather in large groups in close physical contact is not really high productivity activities, a lot of leisure, et cetera. And yes, it's lost growth, but it's not, it's not big ticket items. So I think we need to kind of switch into what I think is God's economy, which is how do we make good, better, best? How are we working our way up the shalom hierarchy rather than we have to choose between economic suicide and mass death of the elderly? That kind of calculus already has us in the wrong headspace, in my opinion. So I, re I reject the trade-off. I understand that Yes, you lose a quarter because of shelter in place, but that's not really a trade-off between long-run long prosperity and, and health because it doesn't destroy our long-run prosperity. Yeah, I, I thank you, Jerry. That's, that's, a, that's a great insight. And I just bring it down to a personal level. Uh, we can shut down for a month or two months, and we're going to be okay. So if you extrapolate that over you know, the global economy, we should be in a position to be able to, to pause but there's been a lot of panic around that. Do you have a, a forecast? Because something you taught me was to watch the markets as indicators of optimism or pessimism. And what I'm seeing as of today, today is April the 7th, I'm seeing a lot of optimism beneath the hysteria of the media. Yes. Because people seem to be saying there's glimmers of hope. It's not going to be as bad. Maybe it wasn't a pandemic even. We're going back into the market. So is that what you're seeing? Yes, that's what I'm seeing. And I can tell you over the past three weeks, Susan and I have been buying, not selling. Uh, so we had uh, dry powder set aside because we didn't like the valuations in the market. We thought that they were unsustainable. There was a certain fragility in, uh, in the markets, especially U.S. markets, especially large cap technology, FANG stocks, et cetera. So we had dry powder set aside. 
and then the market collapsed and we took you know some of that dry powder and we put it in the market went down a little bit more after that we weren't trying to catch the perfect bottom that's silly no one can do that then it went down. And then a week later, we put uh, basically the rest of the dry powder to work. We have we still have a little dry powder left, um, but um, so in a, in a situation like that, when there's panic, generally that's a buying time, not a selling time. Um, um, so I'm not trying to do market timing. I'm just saying when things are on sale, unless you have something that fundamentally destroys the economy, we talk about this like it's a war, and it is in some sense a war, but it is in some sense not a war. In a war, economic productivity is damaged. There, you, you destroy the infrastructure, roads, bridges, factories, ships, planes. They're blown up. They're destroyed. And you have to catch up. So that's almost a permanent loss of economic value. All of our roads and bridges and, and jets and planes and boats and, and tractors, they're all intact. They didn't get the virus. We just can't use them right now, which is a very different economic dynamic than a war. Um, so in a situation like this, it's much easier to rev back up than in a situation where you come out of the rubble and Berlin is, you know, is, is rubble. You know, Berlin's destroyed and you got to start over almost, you know, by hand. We're not starting over. We're just, we have an enforced month and a half vacation. Uh, so get whatever you would do with a good vacation. And then we come back and no one's forgotten how to use the machinery. So I'm not trying to play this down. This is a real economic thing. The second quarter is going to be terrible. I'm not in denial about that. I just want us to kind of counterbalance, understand the difference between something that really destroys long-term um, economic growth and something that puts it on pause. Jerry, because you're a trained economist, I'm going to ask this question. A lead indicator for most investors is to watch jobless claims. And historically, as jobless claims go up, negativity and pessimism about the markets increase. And jobless claims are historic. They're they're epic oh, yeah. right now. But is it true that that could be an inverted V? That that could come that could fall on the other side almost as fast as it went up because these restaurants are going to want their people back. The, the retail sector want people to work there. The the air you know the all these industries are going to need people. Yes, absolutely. And just to be clear, a lot of industries are hiring. Um, our brother-in-law, we, we watch his daughter for her, our, our niece. He's putting in 80, 90 hours a week. I mean, he, could, he can get as many hours as he wants. He, works in, he basically works in a warehouse where they process stuff that goes onto store shelves. Amazon is hiring. So some, there's, there's certainly much more firing than there is hiring. But understand there's also some transitioning going on. But yes, people are going to need to get back to work. And I think that um, we can't treat the normal cyclicality of a regular economic cycle um, as though it's going to give us the pattern of what we have now. So that the traditional, traditionally the cycle is you have a lot of easy money and then the central bank pops the bubble with, with tight money and then you have a credit crisis and then you have an economic slowdown and then you have the layoffs, right? That's the normal cycle. But this isn't the normal cycle. The central bank is incredibly easy with the money. So we, we don't have the standard issue Fed-driven recession. Quite to the contrary, they're pouring money out like a geyser. So that means that when the orders are no longer in place, we come into this with a huge monetary stimulus at our back. Now, I actually don't like that. I think that monetary stimulus and borrowing and government spending is bad for the long-run economy. 
But in terms of people who are afraid that we can't come out of this strong, I think they're not paying attention to the fact that we have the, we have the tax cuts from before. At the end of last year, we signed trade agreements ending the trade war. We had easy money already. Now we have super easy money and we have pent up demand because people are like, I want to go out. I want to do this. I want to go on vacation. I want to go to a hotel. I want to try. They want to do these things. So all that's the, all that stuff, in my opinion, adds up to I don't know if it's a V because a V is how long are we at that bottom? Well, that's the government's decision and they have to watch the pandemic. But let's say a U, um, you know, I think a U-shaped recovery is a very viable possibility. And you think jobs will follow the same U at the top? In other words, if the if the the bottom the U is the the markets or the economy, the top of jobless claims, it may also be a U. In other words, there'll be people off work for three months, four months to six months, but then they'll be returning pretty rapidly. I think there'll be a distinction. There'll be some people who will come back very rapidly, and in my opinion. Um, there'll probably be some people who don't come back as rapidly. So I, I can just tell you that what I think the government's going to end up doing and what I've urged the government to do, I wrote to a friend recently who sees the president every day um, in the capacity of being an economic, um, we'll say in, in the economic policymaking. Um, and what I, where I think they should go and where I think they are going to go is they're going to start to make distinctions. It's not going to be necessary industry and then every else. I think we're going to have, to have to be more discerning. Remember the sons of Issachar? What did they have? Banah, the ability to distinguish things, right? So I think we have to distinguish a NBA game indoors filled with ticket holders from a factory that's building washing machines or automobiles in terms of the risk trade-off relationship. So I think restaurants are going to be in some trouble for a while, which means that low-wage people are probably not going to uh, – some of these low-wage professions are not going to come out as fast. So that's – there's a lot of opportunity there for Christian compassion. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity. Now, some of those people will be able to get jobs driving Ubers or Lyfts you know, uh, uh, and, and delivering food so the restaurants won't shut down. But I think it's – I don't think in the beginning of May we're just going to say, okay, everybody, restaurants open. Um, and probably wouldn't be wise to do that. But I think we could definitely be opening up factories and more professional services, which that leaves some people in a bad position, and we need to help those people with a social safety net. But, see, the thing is, it's tough to be a waitress. It's tough to be a waiter. It's tough to run a bar room or, or a restaurant. I mean, that was my family business when I was growing up. I lived with my grandparents. I grew up in a bar and grill. That's a, that's a tough business, and it just got a whole lot tougher. Um, and I respect it, but it doesn't really move the needle much on overall economic output. The whole restaurant industry together, all of it, is maybe 3% of GDP, maybe 1.5% of gross output. And the in, in, in the room part of it, as opposed to delivery, is probably something like 0.75% of gross output. I mean, it's very hard on the people who lose their jobs, and it's very hard on people who are used to date night at a restaurant, but... We, you don't get a recession out of just shutting down, uh, shutting down restaurants. All right. I want to go to two things for people who are trying to track along with us. I want to talk to you about short-term forecast on the economy and then long-term, okay? That's, that's really what I want to get to is what's this going to do to us long-term because I'm with you, Jerry, that the, 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 the remedy may be worse than the illness, uh, 
But I want to talk about that. But before I do, can we just address a couple of things that are really troubling to me like today, which are all the conspiracy theories? Let me just f- throw one of them at you, that this was that this was China's grand plan to release this virus on the rest of the world, destroy their economies, and they would come out ahead. Do you buy that one? No. No, I don't. I don't buy that one. First of all, some of our best scientists have looked at the genetic structure and said, no, this is a natural coronavirus. We've seen them before. We know what they look like. Coronaviruses are not a brand new thing in the history of the world. There are like seven of them that we know of. Three of them basically give you a common cold. Um, uh, Two of them hurt humans and the others are, you know, animal diseases. So we we know about coronaviruses. Um, So it doesn't bear the marks according to geneticists who've looked at it of something being genetically engineered. Um, and also, I don't understand why they would unleash it on themselves first, given that conspiracy theory. I also don't understand why they would then suppress the knowledge of it, release it in Wuhan province, and then punish doctors who warn them, making the Chinese Communist Party an international byword for mismanagement and corruption. Um, it d- decreases their soft power. I don't know. I mean, if they're conspirators, they're really bad at it. Um, you know, I mean, why not? Why not just send you know infected agents into the United States or the enemies, et cetera? I mean, now the world is very on guard about China. Sure. Uh, so uh, it, I don't think it helps. And why do you need a conspiracy theory like that? We've always had viruses. Viruses mutate, and we've had coronaviruses, um, and and this one mutated. Well, uh, very common th- thing. Don't you think that it's also going to affect them? with people bringing their supply chain closer to home, uh, possibly leaving China, possibly you know, sensing that if it gets interrupted now that they don't want it there long term. I mean, I think it could have more yes. negative impact against them than against us. Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm more on the free trade side of the debate rather than the protectionism side, okay? I, um, that doesn't mean I want all trade. Um, I understand that there are strategic issues so my counsel has been, you know, a general trade war with China never made sense. It never made sense that we're, we're messing around with, with their I'm sending toys and low-grade consumer electronics to us, and they're, then they're punishing our soybean and, and pig farming people, right? I mean, to have a global slowdown around cheap electronics and soybean made no sense. I think where we need to be needed to have been focused is strategic important industries, te- um, high tech, AI, quantum biotechnology, um, and those those are the areas where there's a lot of danger. And, um, my friend Peter Thiel um, pu- publicly called for the Trump administration to pull the Google executives, top Google executives, into I'll say it my way, a brightly lit room, and say how much have you looked the other way while China stole AI technology, right? So I would, I would say that they, we are really going to crack down on them in terms of high-tech transfers. We're probably going to crack down on China even more than we should, probably on the non-essential, non-strategic stuff. I think we're just going to generally have an anti-China thing where we don't want toys and we don't want clothes, right? If, if anything, we'll probably tend to overreact. So that comes round to you answer your question. This is going to hurt China. They are the middle of the supply chain for the developed world. And that was already under pressure. And now the political pressure to 
isolate China in terms of trade is going to be probably irresistible. Jerry, uh, that, that reminds me of another one of the conspiracy theories that Wuhan was the first test site for 5G technology. 5G technology is near radiation level of, of danger. It's weaponized. People are getting compromised in their health, and therefore that's why they're catching this virus. And wherever the 5G technology is installed, we're all going to catch the coronavirus, and it's a conspiracy to usher in the Antichrist. I mean, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard that, Jerry. Oh. I've had, I've, I've Sorry. been. I, people have sent that one to me three or four times. It's out on YouTube. It's, it's permeating a lot of thinking right now. Would you just help us unpack that one, Chuck? How many Antichrists have you lived through? Many. If we were leaving many. these, people. thank you for asking me that, Jerry. I remember, I remember reading a book. When I was young, like why seventy-five reasons why Jesus, uh, why uh, the you know Jesus is going to return in 1975. Remember that one? It was a very catchy yes. title. I read the late great planet Earth. I've, or 88 reasons in 88, or yeah, maybe yeah. there are a couple of them. Right, right, yes. right. Yes, I've been through it many, many times. Uh, my grandfather wrote about eschatology, and by the way, I'm not trained in this, and I'm and I'm not belittling those who are sensitive to these issues. We need to be sensitive. Uh, but my grandfather thought World War II was the end of the world. And I, I can understand why he thought that at that time. But let's just talk about 5G technology because that's a big yes. one. Do you, you, you don't think that's true, that that's the, that's the cause of all of this? It doesn't make sense. I mean, first of all, you don't have correlations. I mean, Italy and Spain don't have highly advanced information technology networks, um, and they got hit very hard. So, I, I mean, I, I, it just doesn't make sense. Um, first of all, I don't understand the science behind it, how 5G gives, creates viruses. Are they saying that 5G created the virus or that no, we're just we're more susceptible to it? Yeah, it compromises our health, which makes us susceptible, and that's why the outbreaks are happening. And if 5G is coming to your area, then you know, that's where it's going to be widespread uh, coronavirus. There are even people burning well, is there down— 5G I'm sorry, is there 5G in New York and New Jersey? I mean, I haven't really looked. I haven't heard this one yet, so I gotta, okay. I'm just putting on my critical. I mean, that's, I just, that sounds pretty crazy to me. I had already been reading a lot of stuff about 5G being bad for us. Um, and China certainly is ahead of the curve on 5G. Um, but uh, even if you argue that it had something to do with the origin, then why aren't we seeing a 5G rollout pattern correlation with people who are getting it now? If you don't think that 5G created the coronavirus, just but just makes us susceptible to it, then what about all the all the tens of thousands of people uh, across America who are nowhere near, you know, top of the line wireless who are getting the coronavirus? How do you how do you vet these conspiracy theories, Jerry? And and, and I want to be sensitive here because my my radar is up because something is different about this because I've never lived through a time when the whole world was still like this never and and it's and it's leading up to the Passover it's leading up yeah, to the Easter season it's, it's in Lent yeah corresponds with the with the church calendar Lent time of silence and repentance I'm sorry I interrupted you well it it just it feels very, very unique and, and important, and I think everybody is trying to ascribe some sense about it other than, you know, there's a virus and a shutdown, blah, blah, blah. It's, 
it's it you know the word of the year may be unprecedented right that's the most overused yes. word i'm trying <laughs> not to use it today but everybody's using it about everything right now but how are you making sense of this? And, and then more importantly, how do you vet out conspiracy theories in your own construct, in the framework that you use? Uh, well, first of all, I don't rule them out. Um, I treat every conspiracy theory that I hear. I mean, some are too crazy, you know, like lizard people, aliens run the world. I'm not, I'm not giving that one a lot of you know, attention. <laughs> but, but, but like the more, like the more plausible ones, I say, okay. Maybe. So then I get, I try to get into the headspace of the person who holds the theory. And I say, what is this theory? And if this theory were true, what would I see? In other words, if this, this is how you always do a scientific hypothesis. It's really a biblical standard of reasoning. In mathematics, it's called Bayesian theory. If this is true, what would the observable data or experience be? That way, we can confirm or disconfirm it. And then um, I start to ask questions like, what number would we put on it? In other words, if you say such and such is happening and it's bad, I say, okay, let's start to just take a scratch paper and start to write numbers down. There'll be complete guesses in the beginning. But then you start honing those numbers, and then you start looking at data. Remember, we've talked about data before. Right. Yes. Tell data, us the meaning of data. I love it. D data. It's a Latin word based on a Greek word. Do, dari, dedi, datus. Something given or one way you can translate it is gifts. Data is gifts, givens. There's something that God gives us in his province. He gives us data. So you don't just look for confirming data. You don't look at the data and say, ah, that makes me want to have a conspiracy theory. You go back to your conspiracy theory and you say, if this is true, what what, what else would the data say before you've looked at the data? And then you go and look at the data and see whether it lines up. So one of the things I'm going to do probably after this call is I'm going to go do a search on 5G deployment um, on planet Earth and compare that map to the map of coronavirus infections. Because if they're right, if the theory is right, that Wuhan was a 5G hotspot and Wuhan is where it started, therefore, you know, 5G causes the pandemic, well, if that's the case, it wouldn't just happen in Wuhan. It would happen everywhere. I mean, if that's the science behind it, God has a unified world. He has the same laws every place, right? He's not a god of chaos. It's not like Greek and Roman gods where they each have their zone and Poseidon has the sea and whatever, right? There's one god, one set of scientific laws. So if that's the case, then let's look and see what the data says. I suspect the data will not show a high correlation between 5G zone and Wuhan outbreak, except maybe to the degree that you have high population density where you have high 5G. So you have to account for that. So what I try to do with the conspiracy theory is actually pay it the honor of taking it seriously enough to try to test it. Um, and generally, conspiracy theories don't come out very well with that kind of testing hypothesis because they're easy to create, difficult to prove, and mostly wrong because conspiracy theories are by their nature unlikely because they involve secretive actions by large numbers of people in concert with one another, which nevertheless stay secret. So you've got to get over that bar of how did this stay secret, right, um, if, if given that so many powerful people are involved. Now, there, there's one conspiracy theory that isn't crazy, which is that the, the devil conspires against us. Um, and that we can either resist the devil and he'll flee for, from us, or we can join his game. 
Um, so the job of the church is to understand that we do have a conspirator who is an archangel or fallen archangel who's very powerful, and that's who we're wrestling with. Um, and that nobody that you know that this, there's an element of spiritual warfare to this. And I think conspiracy theories, what they tend to do is take the spiritual warfare level and pull it down to the human level. So that when they see bigger patterns, they think that there's some man who's manipulating things when there isn't. There's a devil who's manipulating things. And there's a sovereign triune God who's above that, who's using the devil's manipulations against himself. Uh, so there are bigger plans. Um, there are big, powerful forces with plans, but it's not, it's not humans. Uh, humans, we, our, our plans don't amount to much. You know? <laughs> no one's powerful enough to run the big conspiracy theory. Um, well, so I, I had it wrong a little bit. And I want to clarify because I think the prevailing the, the, the 5G prevailing theory that people are glomming onto is that the coronavirus is the hoax. And the, the, the damage done to the lung is from the radiation. And this is the hoax in order to continue to spread 5G so that 5G technology can usher in AI, Internet of all things, autonomous uh, cars, all that is necessary to those who are going to control the world. Therefore, they're just calling it a virus when it's really the radiation that's killing us all. I'll let you look so, at that. So are they saying there is no coronavirus at all, all, that it doesn't exist, like it's completely made up, or are they just... Well, I fear that I'm making up a new conspiracy theory myself as I go. <laughs> better I, be careful. I know. All right. Chuck, I, 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 Chuck Bentley from Crown, Crown <laughs> Ministries says, and then quotes right, without right. the part afterwards where you say, I'm just kidding. No, I'm um, botching the Chuck, one that's so popular right you'll now. You'll be a meme now. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm I, a bad I, conspiracy theorist. Um, it, let, me, let me just go back to some uh, uh, aspect that I use and see if it aligns with you. I always consider the source first. And a lot of these conspiracy theories pop up on people who have a, a website or a platform that they consider journalism, mm -hmm. but it's really built on dramatic, uh, provocative type of uh, reports. And yes. it looks like they're trying to get clicks. And so yes. if it's one of those sites, I usually discount it. If it's... if. And I just I have to go to the source first. Secondly, if it looks like it has completely out of the bounds of Scripture, then I start to discount it. I think Scripture leaves some breadcrumbs to follow of what end times is going to look like. And certainly this probably feels a little bit like the shaking of mm -hmm. people's dependence on money or dependence on their job or dependence on their government even right. that we're, we will experience one day. But it doesn't have all of those earmarkings. Do you agree with that, Jerry? I agree that it doesn't have all of the earmarkings. I think that there is an itching ears aspect to prophetic speculation where people find, in my experience, people find a haven from the responsibilities of life in running prophetic scenarios. Um, so there, there was a, someone who I can't see someone who oh, I've maybe met once or twice, but I met him on Facebook and this is, I'm just not going to say anything else except that this is a person with a lot of problems, um, and, um, a lot of economic problems and just, you know, struggling. And, uh, I wrote to him, um, in the message and I said, well, okay, 
keep your social distance, do this, be healthy, and read the Bible. And he said, yes, I'm reading my Bible um, all the time. And it's obvious that he's going to use this to take over and put chips in our head. Um, oh, yeah, that's and a new I, one. Yeah, that's, that's uh, the Bill Gates right. theory right now. Right. Okay. Well, this was Trump because he's a Democrat. Okay. Um, so he's, he's a liberal guy. So Trump is right. the anti. So I said, you know what? I don't usually tell people not to read parts of the Bible, but the book of Revelation, the St. John's Apocalypse, is a very, very difficult book, which has had so many. You talk about COVID test false positives. You know, that some people have said the early test has a 50% false positive rate. So far, the prophecy crowd that is selling everything from blood moons, you know, to this, um, has a 100% false positive rate. So maybe get out of Matthew 24 for a little while and Revelation uh, and obscure passages in Daniel and just get some time in Psalms and Proverbs and the gospel stories. Um, you know, so read, read your Bible, but don't read the crazy parts. And I think that there's, I, I just, I almost wish that evangelicals would just take a break from eschatology for a while because we have blown it so badly that um, at, at the very least, just take take a grain of salt this big every time some. Just think of all the times you bought it before. Just think, and I did too. Back to how Lindsay, how how many times we swallowed that, and it didn't turn out to be right. And just say maybe we really don't understand the Book of Revelation and Matthew twenty four and Luke twenty one and Mark twenty three uh, and Daniel seven and Daniel nine as much as we thought we did. Well, it makes me. Uh, more uh, understanding of why Old Testament law required false prophets to be stoned, because you basically just said, if you're gonna if you're gonna claim you know what God is up to, emphatically claim that He has revealed to you what He is doing, and you are wrong, then that's the last time you're gonna get to do that. Yes. Now, see, so we have a lot of people who come so close and then they fall back a little, right? Like the blood moon. Because I even confronted the blood moon guy, and he's like, I never said absolutely true. It's like, no, you didn't. But I got to tell you, I had several hundred people who got a strong impression from you that the markets were going to collapse um, on that day. So I think what we have is the hypesters, the prophecy hypesters, they know enough to not to always leave like a little bit of wiggle room at the end so they can keep selling books because they, they have some plausible deniability. So I think we need to get out of prophetic role. And here's something else I want people to remember. There's this, there is a difference between the end of the world and the end of a world. So I think sometimes, I think something, I think a lot of prophetic material that we have evangelicals has, have historically taken as being about the end of the world was about the end of a world, the end of the world of Old Testament Israel and the destruction of the temple. Now, there's a heresy that says that all the prophecies are about that. Well, I'm not talking about that. But New Testament scholarship has gotten better and better at seeing how often Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in the lifetime of the people he's talking about. And so anytime there's the end of a world, it's going to feel like the end of the world to people who live in that world that's ending, right? So it felt to Second Temple Israelites like it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. It's was just the end of their world. Um, and it feels to us in Western civilization as we have these shakings, which I think pretend the real possibility of Western civilization being eclipsed as it falls into apostasy. We think of that as the end of the world. 
I, I don't know whether Western civilization will survive or not. I honestly don't. God hasn't given me insight on that, and I don't have the gift of prophecy. But I know there's a lot of Christians in China, and there's a lot of Christians in Africa. There's a lot of Christians around the world that are kind of coming into the beginning of their world. And I'm not convinced that God is not going to give them running time and space to build their own Christian societies there while, while we fall under judgment or under chastening for a while. So just because something's really bad in Europe and the United States doesn't mean that's not the whole world. There's a whole, most people aren't here. Uh, so, yeah, I think America's in some trouble. I honestly do. I think Europe's in big trouble, but that's not the whole world. I love that, Jerry. And I want to transition to, you know, questions to my professional economist friend. You've indicated a U-shaped recovery. I think that's what I'm hearing uh, over and over and over, a lot of optimism around that. Uh, you're not with Dr. Doom, Noriel Rubini, that this is the big one. This is the, you know, he, he said, I heard him just this week say, it's not even an L recovery, you know, the L shape where we drop 30, 40, 50 percent of GDP and stay there. This is a straight down zoom to the bottom, cataclysmic potential, you know, death and destruction. You're not there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not. Um, Noriel's got a great career gig going on. He just predicts crises for 25 years and we get about one a decade. And then he can say, see, I was right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't have the luxury of doing that. I've got people who are actually depending on me to make investment decisions. So I've got to actually try to discern what's going on and get it to the best of my ability rather than be the Dr. Doom or the Dr. Boom who's right once in a while and then takes a victory lap. Well, what I am concerned about and what I wanted to get to is beyond this recovery, I am, I am very uncomfortable with the thought that in 08 and 09, we passed a historic stimulus act. And now here we are in 2020, and we've got essentially 10% of the GDP being poured into the market all at one time. Yes. Uh, and we're doing that again. And, and this is a pattern of behavior. And you and I know, and everybody listening knows, that really can't continue, Jerry. But the only yes. thing to stop it from continuing is the political will for somebody to say, mm, you know, economics matter. We need to we need to stop some of this madness. But I don't see us having that political will. How do you forecast what will happen if we keep doing this cycle? Boom and bust with massive bailout. I, I think we're in the same place on this. Um, I'm we, we had a crisis. We had a little recession in 2000, 2001 with the dot com bubble and with the with the 9-11 um, attack. So uh, the 9-11 attack was a good example of something could be really big in terms of cultural impact, but pretty small in terms of economic impact, right? So, so we had that, and what did the Fed do? It went down to 1% interest rate for a long period of time, creating what? The next bubble, thereby creating the next crisis, right? So we created the crisis out of our invalid solution to the previous crisis, but it got bigger. In other words, 1% interest rate, you know, I mean, we, the bubble wasn't that huge. The housing bubble wasn't that big. It was bubble territory, but it wasn't gigantic. Um, there were other factors that made 2008, 2009 worse. So what we did is we monetized that. Then the Fed raised interest rates quickly, triggered a deflationary recession. And then what did they do with 2008, 2009? They went down to the lowest interest rates in American history. They went down to some of the lowest interest rates in a thousand years. 
okay? So, and then what we did is we took a bunch of private debt and we moved it to the public. So we didn't decrease debt, we didn't deleverage, we just transferred. And then what happened? Easy money called, caused the private sector to lever up again. So you got all this private sector debt, and the government says, I'll buy that from you. So now it's public sector debt, not just the United States, but around the world. And then the private sector levered up again, right? So now we have another crisis, and partly what we did in 2008 and 2009 made us less able to handle this crisis. So we never unwound it. I mean, even the people who are Keynesians say, well, there's a cycle, and you wind up the debt, and then you wind down when it's good, and then you wind up, and then you wind down. We just keep winding up, winding up, winding up. So now we're doing something that's really huge, a huge monetary stimulus, money creation, huge spending, and huge borrowing. For the moment, it is holding together. And my base case is that it will hold together. The, we have only had one U.S. Um, real debt crisis or currency crisis in our history. It was the, the, the collapse of the continental in the 1870s, 1880s, right? And then John Witherspoon, the Christian minister and statesman, saw that, you know, and it worked on the Constitutional Convention and came out and said, we need to have sound money. We can't ever repeat this mistake again. And the United States has, compared to the rest of the world, generally had sound money since then. That biblical heritage, that explicit theological biblical heritage, has made the world trust the United States dollar and the United States bond market. Our history of covenant keeping is keep is it means the world is saying, okay, one more time, we'll we'll take those dollars, we'll use those dollars, we'll take your bonds. I don't think we have another one left in us. I think the next one, again, I I don't know, Lord, be merciful to me if I'm saying something wrong or guide me in the right direction. So this is not a hard claim. This is just me trying to discern as a son of Issachar. I think that what we're doing to get out of this crisis will make it impossible for us to print and borrow our way out of the next crisis because the next crisis won't be an attack on banks. It will be a loss of confidence in the federal government, the treasury, and the central bank itself. Who bails out? that right, right no right. You, you can bail out the most powerful economic entities in the world there's no bailouts left after that and i so want christians to be ready for that i feel like god is providentially giving us a warning get out of your normal stuff get out of your nonsense get out of your fighting over doctrine and fighting over this and fighting over that and be the people the world needs you to be to be out of debt to have liquidity and most of all to have wisdom and calmness in, in, the, in a moment when you're needed. Because I think there is a big one coming. And just understand, Chuck, my whole career, I've always been the one the media goes to to say, we're not collapsing, are we? I mean, I was on Glenn Beck's show, whatever. It's always, I think it's going to be a collapse. And I was always the guy to say, no, we're fine. We can handle 60% debt to GDP ratio. We can handle 70%. We can handle 80%. We can handle 100% debt to GDP ratio, but we're getting dangerous. Um, I am now in the camp of not Dr. Doom, but it is a non-trivial risk of a genuine debt and currency crisis in the United States within the investable horizon zone. And I think we need to be ready for that. Jerry, I'm in your camp and I, I, can't, I couldn't articulate it as well as you just did, but I'm in that camp. A lot of it has been intuitive, but I want to go back to the model you just described about 1% interest. 
which created the bubble. We're now at 0% interest, Jerry, and maybe even soon coming negative interest. Yes. There, it, 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 it is just a law of economics that it's going to create another bubble when you put 0% interest money out there, right? It, it's, it, it is a bubble already, right? I mean, it's a bond bubble, right? Now, so what, where, what, do, what other kind of bubble does it create? Probably a government bubble because we're enabling government spending. And who's going to say don't spend? And President Trump is not a traditional conservative Republican. He's not a Reagan. I mean, Reagan ran deficits to win the Cold War. The, the president likes government spending. Oh, sure. I, <laughs> I listened to an interview with uh, President Trump before he was in, in politics. It was back in 08, 09. Mm. And he said, debt doesn't matter. We've got more assets than we could possibly ever, uh, you know, ever that we, that we need to borrow against. You know, we've got trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of assets, like we, we could sell the Statue of Liberty or something. Uh, you know, so he doesn't believe debt matters, and I'm not <laughs> casting stones at him. I just agree with you that really what I see happening is the wake-up call for the next big one. And, and I think it gets into, does the G20 uh, band together and say, all right, we're going to bail out the world? <laughs> yeah, right? Not enough. I, I, the reason I'm laughing, you said sell the Statue of Liberty, and I kind of laughed. I thought, well, maybe not the statue, but I think we're willing to sell liberty um, for a little security. But um, look, and in 2008, 2009, those debt levels were handleable. Um, but they're, I, here's what I would say about national debts, having looked at a lot of data. I've looked at a lot of dots on screens with lines on them on this. Debt does not matter at all up until the moment when it is the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And you can't use past experience of debt not mattering to say that it never will matter because it's mattered for almost every nation before us, including us. We had a debt crisis and a hyperinflation. We just had, had it 200 years ago. We're not immune to it. We just, we learned from that lesson and Christian statesmen and theologians said, you know what? To print money needlessly is stealing, and we put a moral foundation for what became the global financial system. But we don't have that moral foundation anymore. And we don't even have Christian prophets, real prophets in the sense of confronting evil, not in the sense of guessing about the future and creating clickbait, who are talking to the United States saying it is immoral to borrow against our children's future at levels which are not possible to pay back. We're caught up with our conspiracy theories and our, 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 all our old fights, and we need to be the prophetic witness to this culture, and we need to be prepared. And we need to be the ones who don't have the broken thought process, and we need to be the people who don't fall into the emotion. And I have a lot of hope for this network yeah. right here. Yeah, thank you. I, I, there's, there's, a few, there's you, there's one or two others of Christians who never who don't buy the crazy. They're load-bearing structures in their world. You know, that's the typical CEF member is not a, it's not a clickbait writer. The typical CEF uh, person is somebody who makes a payroll or has made a payroll who's like a load-bearing structure. They don't have time for nonsense. They need wisdom. That's where the Issachar, you know, you, and I'm going to mention some other kingdom advisors, and there's a few out there where there is the possibility of that Issachar community of people who know markets and know the Bible and come together and share wisdom. Even if, even as the rest of the Christian community is going a little crazy with some of this stuff. No, oh, thank you, Jerry. I'm, I'm uh, trying to be that. Honestly, I try to be that. I'm, I'm. Uh, I read a lot. I try to process what I read through what the Scripture says, 
and then have a very measured response, especially when there are there's so much vulnerability right now. I feel like in a time of uncertainty, our minds will be filled with fear or faith. And I'm trying to fill my mind with faith and, and help others walk that same path. Yes. I've got one more question because it's quite obvious I could enjoy talking to you for like two more hours. Go as long as you want, my friend. I'm enjoying it too. All right. So uh, one more question. Everybody says America, that we knew it, will never be the same. We're not going to come out of this the same country as we are today. Do you buy that? And if so, what do you see is going to change at the foundational level? I think that uh, I don't know. I don't think we're going to be the same. I just don't know whether we're going to be better or worse. Um, so I think that's really up to the Christian community. Um, because when something comes, when a trial comes, I don't, I'm sure you've seen this in the life of friends. Some, you, you know, someone, a friend of yours, business or whatever, they get into trouble, right? And then what do they do when they're in trouble? When they're in trouble is often when they make either the best or worst decision of their lives. Right. That's that moment where it's like, I'll do anything to get out of this jam. I'll lie. I'll steal. I'll kill to get out of this jam. And other people say, God, I'll do anything to get out of this jam. What would you have me to do? And thank you for putting me here. And now what are you saying to me? You've got your megaphone on. I've got my ears open. What are you saying to me? I think that this is a wake-up call to the Christian community about how fragile we are. Um, I think it's a wake-up call to the financial community about how fragile we are. All of our debts, um, and I don't want to get into really complex international finance, so I'll just put this, the next sentence, take it or leave it, that running chronically high trade deficits is the cost of being able to run chronically high federal deficits. In other words, we we became dependent on China financially, um, not because industry needed it, but because government needed it. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's called, if someone wants to look it up, it's called Triffin's Dilemma. Um, and um, Robert Mundell, the Nobel Prize winning economist, um, called the father of the euro. I don't think, he doesn't think he's the father of the euro, but some of his insights, he says that there's a version of this, it has a version of Triffin's Dilemma. So bottom line is, that uh, my friend David Goldman said, that mistake, that financial fragility came back to hit us. That's why markets went down so fast, so hard, because of all that cross-border currency hedging, which was really just an elaborate way for the federal government to borrow money. Um, we have to get past that. So, all, so there's been a revelation. Hebrews says, not about our time, I think, but about their time. Things are being shaken so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Um, The Sadducean dynasty got shaken to dust. The Christian movement went on to get a billion and a half adherents. The Christian movement was the thing that couldn't be shaken when Paul or Apollos or whoever wrote Hebrews. Okay, so we're going to see what can be shaken and what can't be shaken. And we see that we had fragility in our financial markets. We have fragility in our personal health. There's no doubt about this disease doesn't hit everyone equally. People with diabetes, people with smoking problems, people with COPD, there's a whole lot of health conditions that move you from a one per, from a half percent death rate to a 20% death rate. It's not just age, it's health. So all of our lack of financial health, our lack of physical health, our lack of cultural health, falling prey to crazy conspiracy theories because we don't know how to think, 
our, all of our lack of shalom is being revealed right now. So don't let that crisis go to waste. Everything in your life that you see shaken now and everything in your environment that you see shaken now is what we have to work to fix and create and replace before the next big one comes. This is, this is, this is a, a, a warning shot, in my opinion, for us to get our personal houses, our physical house, our personal houses, our business houses, our national house, our church house in order to be, to do better what that you know, to to do better that next time than we are doing this time although some of us are doing pretty well this time and better than we were doing in 2008 and 2009 each one of these is god saying i'm going to put you on the treadmill i'm going to run you till your chest hurts and then that means go back and get ready for the next stress test so this is a stress test I, i'm convinced we're going to survive um but it's a warning test that we it's a warning we need to pay attention to Jerry, I'm going to force myself to call it there because literally I've got three or four more topics. So can we do this again? I, I would love to do it. Just uh, just uh, send an email or a message and let us know the time. Happy to do it. I just want to close with prayer for the people who are listening right now. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for Jerry. Thank you for uh, this framework of being your people who understand the times and know what to do. People who can keep their head, people who can use wisdom, people who have biblical foundation and will not be shaken, even though everything around us is being shaken. And Lord, thank you for the, the clear words from Jerry that this is a wake-up call of our fragility, of our, of our weakness, of our dependence, and how desperately we need you and we need your principles. Uh, man's economy is built on sand but your economy is built on the rock. And help us, each one, wherever we are, whatever business, whatever industry, whatever country, whatever culture, whatever uh, continent we're located on right now listening to this, to be like the men of Issachar in our own space, to lead without fear and to bring hope and truth and, and uh, your principles to the forefront, Lord. I know that I know that you want to be glorified as we go into this holy week as we go into shelter uh, during the Passover, mm. as we uh, remember that it was you and your blood that brought about salvation. It wasn't Pharaoh that brought salvation to your people. You delivered them supernaturally. And Lord, help us to be open to what you are doing and to truly be discerning, not, be, not to fall prey to ideas that are, are fantasy in some cases. To be wise and, and to have uh, have our have our um, our filters up very carefully, not just over our face to filter the virus, but to filter out the lies that could uh, come into our minds right now. Help each one listening right now to be strong and courageous, to have a different spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, friend. I, I just brother. thank the world of you. God bless I you for your time. Feel the same way. God bless you. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom aleichem. Yes, shalom. Well, thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more, just visit us at crown.org. Mm -hmm.